Section 44 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies, An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases, by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombow. Homicide, Part 21. The Goss Utterzook Tragedy, Part 20. 5. On Tuesday afternoon, the 8th of December following, the testimony for a new trial of William E. Utterzook commenced. Mr. Perdue said the motion for a new trial rested mainly on the reason that two of the jurors had expressed opinions in regard to the murder previous to the trial, also upon the reason that the court erred in sending the Dr. Steele letter to the jury for examination and comparison. The next subject spoken of by Mr. Perdue was that of permitting photographs to be used in the identification of dead bodies. A little evidence was produced to show that Arnold Nichols, the twelfth juror, had expressed an opinion as to the guilt or innocence of Utterzook. Mr. Hayes addressed the court in behalf of the Commonwealth. He spoke disparagingly of the testimony in regard to the statements alleged to have been made by Nichols. He said, It is a fact that Nichols was accepted as a juror by the defense after he admitted that he expressed an opinion in regard to the guilt or innocence of the prisoner. He continued, I submit to your honor that, from the testimony, we can find no malevolence in Nichols's statements. It has been shown that he expressed a desire not to be put upon the jury immediately before he was called. Mr. Hayes made a few remarks upon the letters which were sent to the jury, and argued in support of the use of the photographs for the purposes of identification. As soon as the argument on behalf of the Commonwealth was finished, Wayne McVeigh arose and said, There are two questions to be considered in this argument. The first is in the delivery of the letters to the jury on the Sunday upon which the verdict was rendered. If these letters had been given to the jury in the beginning, before they had determined to decide the one way or the other, they would have been much less dangerous than after they had been deliberating for a day and a half or two days upon the matter. The court may feel that when the jury ask for these things, they should receive them, but I think this is more dangerous than if they had had them in the beginning. Undue importance would be attached to the slightest trifle, after having deliberated for so long a time without reaching any conclusion. In the jury-room, perhaps, an immaterial difference may have arisen, and after hours of wrangling, they agree to ask for testimony which would settle the dispute, and each side agrees to come over to the other in case of its being decided adversely. The letters are taken out, and the opinion of one side upon the immaterial dispute is corroborated, and then the verdict is rendered, having been reached by an artificial bridge. I next speak of the testimony in regard to Arnold Nichols. You have heard the statements of these witnesses, and the denials of them by Nichols. Can your honors hesitate to give the prisoner the benefit of this doubt? You will ask yourselves whether this man, as a juror, answers the requirements of the Constitution and the law. In the selection of the jury, we must act hastily, 
and will necessarily often make mistakes. Nor is there any help for it if, after accepting a man, you find you are misled and that he is unfit. Now we only ask for a jury of fair minds. To that right we are entitled. I know that it is the natural disposition of this world to let things remain as they are and to take a verdict as final. But I venture to urge, as reasons for setting this verdict aside, the facts in reference to this man Nichols, and I submit to the court whether it is possible to constitute him such a juror as the Constitution prescribes. Upon reconvening of the court on Saturday, the twelfth day of December, Judge Butler announced the disposition of the Utterzook case as follows. Commonwealth versus Utterzook. The first and fourth reasons on which the demand for a new trial is founded have been abandoned. The propriety of using the photograph of Goss to aid in his identification under the assumed name of Wilson, we do not doubt, nor do we doubt the propriety of granting the request of the jury to see the letter signed by Goss, which was in evidence. The testimony relating to Mr. Wilson, one of the jurors, fails to show any expression of opinion previous to the trial, and, in the judgment of the court, is not deserving of further notice. That relating to Mr. Nichols, another juror, does show expressions of opinion, but this is no more than the juror stated when called to the box. It is urged, however, that the language used by him, as testified to by Lewis Powell, shows that this juror did not come to the trial with impartial mind. Without enlarging upon the testimony of Mr. Powell, it is sufficient to say that it did not impress the court favorably as respects the witness himself. His admission on being recalled that Mr. Nichols was intoxicated at the time to which he had previously referred, and his voluntary addition that he was not, quote, more so, however, than he commonly is, end quote, did not seem to indicate an unbiased mind towards the juror. With Mr. Nichols's denial, we do not regard the objectionable expressions as proved. But if this were otherwise, and Mr. Nichols under the influence of liquor at the time, his language might well be regarded as an exaggerated expression of opinion resulting from the excitement of liquor. In the subsequent statement, that he did not believe the prisoner guilty, or did not believe the evidence would convict, and the witness cannot be relied upon for the exact language used, we do not see the evidence of evil mind towards the prisoner suggested by counsel. The judgments of men are very diverse, and it is not improbable that many honest and impartial persons entertain this view. District Attorney Wanger then moved that the judgment and sentence of the court in vindication of the law be passed upon the prisoner. Judge Butler then delivered the sentence as follows. An impartial trial, in which you were prosecuted with fairness and liberality, and defended with zeal and ability, has resulted in your conviction of murder in the first degree, and this result is just. That the corpse found in Bear's Woods was that of Winfield Scott Goss is not open to doubt. From the building on the York Road, which was burned to cover the flight of this man, he is traced with unerring certainty to the desolate grave in the woods. Changing his name, and seeking to hide himself, 
he yet left behind, wherever he went, evidences of identity that preclude all danger of mistake. His striking peculiarity of person, his habit of intemperance, the remarkable ring he wore, his handwriting, parts of his dress left behind, his photograph, recognized wherever he went, and especially his patent screwdriver, exhibited from time to time, his peculiar habit of addressing you by the title of doctor, and your own graphic description of him to Rhodes, quote, as a man who had been lost for a long time and was supposed to be dead, end quote, enable us to identify Goss in the man called Wilson with as much certainty as if he had worn his proper name. Traced from place to place, a few days before the body was discovered, he was seen in the vicinity of Bear's Woods, going in that direction, and was not seen alive thereafter. You, who were there with him, had informed Rhodes, only a few hours before, that the woods was his contemplated destination. When the grave was opened, the same remarkable personal peculiarities of Goss were found in the corpse, the resemblance agreeing in everything, down to the color of the hair, the shape of the whiskers, and the length of the unshaven beard. The ring was gone from the finger, but it was found virtually in your possession, upon the seat of the vehicle in which you had been riding. All his clothes, save the shoes and shirt, had been destroyed, but these remaining articles resembled his so closely that the shoes are virtually identified as the same. They were not only similar in kind, but were peculiarly marked in two respects, as his had been. We repeat, with unerring certainty, Goss is traced to this grave, and with the same certainty is his murder traced to you. First, it is shown that you had a motive to commit the crime. The success of your schemes, as well as your personal safety, counseled if they did not demand it. Second, it is shown that you expressed your purpose to do it, at first dimly, as in the letter of December, and afterwards distinctly, as in the conversation with Rhodes. And thirdly, it is shown that you did it. Five days preceding the event, he left the William Penn Hotel in your company. Three days later, he is found in this county, still in your company, manifestly under your influence, passing westward and shunning observation. In the evening of the next day, as night came on, he was again seen in your company, seated by your side in the vehicle procured at Penningtonville, now in the neighborhood of Bears Woods and going in that direction. Thus you were with him immediately preceding his death, near to and approaching the place where found. Directly after, you were alone, and he was no more seen alive. The vehicle in which you were riding together was broken, the carpeting torn from its floor, the blankets missing, and the floor stained with blood. But a few hours previous, you had expressed your purpose to commit the crime, and sought the aid of your brother-in-law in its accomplishment. To the crushing weight of these terrible facts, you opposed nothing but an improbable, inconsistent statement, proved to be untrue in some respects, and supported by evidence in none. No rational mind with this knowledge can entertain a doubt of your guilt. And it is not the guilt of an ordinary murder. With full average mind and fair intelligence, 
you entered upon a gigantic scheme of fraud. An element in this scheme was the false assertion of Goss's death, supported by fictitious appearances, the creation of your acts, supplemented by your perjury. Possessed of a strong will, you carried this scheme almost to successful accomplishment. When, at length, threatened with discovery, your plans and your personal safety endangered, you resolved to secure yourself by taking the life of your accomplice in this crime. You had known him long and intimately, and were closely connected with him by marriage. You had obtained his confidence, and he seemed to follow your suggestions with unquestioning trust. You dragged his weary feet from place to place, under pretense of seeking an asylum where he might still be secure. At length you reached the neighborhood familiar to your youth, where it might well have been hoped the recollections of that better, purer time in your life would have awakened some spark of tenderness and arrested your cruel hand. But here, resolutely and fatally bent on your wicked purpose, as evening faded into night you committed this most horrible of crimes. Leaving your victim for a time, you returned at the solemn hour of midnight, and with the peaceful stars looking down upon you, and the sad appealing eyes gazing up, you carved and quartered him as if he were a dog, spending the night in a futile effort to cover up the evidence of your guilt. Then, visiting your aged mother, you returned to your wife and children, with as little apparent concern as a man returns from a journey of pleasure. The long record of crime scarce furnishes a parallel to this case. These things are not said to increase the misery of your present situation, but to vindicate the sentence which the law is about to pronounce, nor are they said without sorrow, for we are not unmindful that human justice is imperfect, that the weakness of your moral nature and the force of your temptation cannot enter into its judgment, that they will be considered and justly weighed in the balance by him who knows the secret troubles of the soul, whose justice is perfect, and whose mercy is boundless, we cannot doubt. The three judges here arose, and the sentence proper was given as follows. The court does now order and adjudge that you, William E. Utterzook, be removed hence to the prison from whence you came, and there be closely confined until such a day as the governor may appoint, then you shall be taken from thence, and hanged by the neck until you are dead. May God have mercy on your soul. During the passing of the sentence, Judge Butler was very much moved, showing how keenly he felt the terrible importance of so unpleasant a duty, and when he had finished, he reclined back in his chair, and placing his hands over his eyes, so remained for several minutes. Utterzook, throughout the trying ordeal, changed some little in color, and showed some nervousness. But when the sentence was concluded, he, at the direction of Mr. Perdue, took his seat in an orderly manner, with not a tear or show of fear evident. After the sentence was delivered, the judge ordered the sheriff to take the prisoner back to jail. 6. The counsel for the defendant had taken a great number of exceptions during the trial, but not one of them was ultimately sustained. On July 2, 1874, 
the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, sitting in banc, affirmed the sentence of death. Chief Justice Agnew delivered the opinion, which is of special interest, covering as it does the question upon the admissibility of photographs in evidence. William E. Utterzook versus the Commonwealth. Error to the Court of Oyer and Terminer of Chester County. Eastern District. Opinion of the Court. Agnew, Chief Justice. This is indeed a strange case, a combination by two to cheat insurance companies, and a murder of one by the other to reap the fruit of the fraud. The great question in the case was the identity of A.C. Wilson as W.S. Goss. This is established by a variety of circumstances and many witnesses, leaving no doubt that Goss and Wilson were the same person, and that the body found in Bear's Woods was that of Goss. All the bills of exceptions, except one, relate to this question of identity, the most material relating to the use of a photograph of Goss. This photograph, taken in Baltimore on the same plate with a gentleman named Langley, was thereby proved by him and also the artist who took it. Many objections were made to the use of this photograph, the chief being to identify Wilson as Goss, the prisoner's counsel regarding this use of it as certainly incompetent. That a portrait or a miniature painting from life, and proved to resemble the person, may be used to identify him, cannot be doubted. Though, like all other evidences of identity, it is open to disproof or doubt, and must be determined by the jury. There seems to be no reason why a photograph, proved to be taken from life and to resemble the person photographed, should not fill the same measure of evidence. It is true that the photographs we see are not the original likeness, and their lines are not traced by the hands of the artist, nor can the artist be called to testify that he faithfully lined the portrait. They are but paper copies taken from the original plate called the negative, made sensitive by chemicals and printed upon by sunlight through the camera. It is a result of art guided by certain principles of science. In the case before us, such a photograph of the man Goss was presented to a witness who had never seen him, so far as he knew, but who had seen a man known to him as Wilson. The purpose was to show that Goss and Wilson were one and the same person. It is evident that competency of the evidence in such a case depends upon the reliability of the photograph as a work of art, and this, in the case before us, in which no proof was made by experts of this reliability, must depend upon the judicial cognizance we may take of photographs as an established means of producing a correct likeness. The Daguerrean process was first given to the world in 1839. It was soon followed by photography, of which we have had nearly a generation's experience. It has become a customary and a common mode of taking and preserving views as well as the likenesses of persons, and has obtained universal assent to the correctness of its delineations. We know that its principles are derived from science, that the images on the plate, worked by the rays of light through the camera, were dependent on the same general laws which produce the images of outward forms upon the retina through the lens of the eye. The process has become one in general use, 
so common we cannot refuse to take judicial cognizance of it as a proper means of producing correct likenesses. But, happily, the proof of identity in this case is not dependent on the photograph alone. Letters from Wilson, identified as the handwriting of Goss, a peculiar ring belonging to Goss, worn upon the finger of Wilson, the recognition by Wilson of A.C. Goss as his brother, packages addressed to A.C. Goss, and envelopes bearing the marks of the firm with which W.S. Goss had been employed, coming and going to and from Baltimore, and many other circumstances following up the man Wilson, leave no doubt of his identity as Goss, independent of the photographer. The objection to the proof of Goss's habits of intoxication is equally untenable. True, the habit is common to many, and alone would have little weight, but habits are a means of identification, though with strength in proportion to their peculiarity. The weight of the habit was a matter for the jury. It is unnecessary to follow the bill of exceptions in detail. They all relate to the facts and circumstances bearing on the question of identity. If the bills of exceptions are many, they only denote that the circumstances were numerous, and in this multiplication consists the strength of the proof. They are many links in a chain so long it encircled the prisoner in a double fold. There was no error in permitting the jury, after their return into the court for further instructions, to take out with them, at their own request, the letter, check, due bill, and applications for insurance, papers which had been proved, read in evidence, and commented on in the trial. The appearance, contents, and handwriting of the documents were no doubt important to be inspected by the jury, who could not be expected to carry all these features in their minds. It is customary in murder cases to permit the jury to take out, for their examination, the clothing worn by the deceased, exhibiting its condition, the rent made in it, the instrument of death, and all things proved and given in evidence bearing on the commission of the offense. We discern no error in this record, and therefore affirm the sentence and judgment of the court below, and order this record to be remitted for execution. 7. Strenuous efforts were now made by the counsel and immediate friends of the prisoner to obtain a pardon or a commutation of sentence. A hearing upon this took place before the Board of Pardons in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, on the 8th of October, 1874. The result was unfavorable to the petitioner, and a few days afterwards, Joseph F. Perdue, Esquire, one of the counsel for Utterzook, received the following letter from Governor Hartranft. Executive Chamber, Harrisburg, October 12, 1874, Joseph F. Perdue, Esquire, Westchester, Pennsylvania. Dear Sir, After careful consideration of the facts in the case of William E. Utterzook, I believe it to be my duty to issue the warrant for execution. I am yours, with great respect, J. F. Hartranft. Upon receipt of this letter, Mr. Perdue immediately proceeded to the jail to acquaint the prisoner, accompanied by two other gentlemen whom he had requested to go with him. Upon entering the cell of the wretched man, Utterzook read at a glance, in the countenance of his counsel, 
that the mission was of a serious character, and taking him by the arm, he led him to the farthest corner of the cell and asked, "'Have you my death warrant?' Mr. Perdue replied that he had not, but he had what was substantially the same thing, and then read to him the letter from the governor. At the conclusion of the reading, Utterzook expressed his disapproval of the action of the Board of Pardons, and also of that of the lower court in not granting him a new trial. But, said he, straightening himself up and assuming an air of injured innocence, they have all the way long thirsted, plotted for my life, and now they can have it. He said to Mr. Perdue that he had been well and ably defended, and gave his hand to attest his feeling of the truthfulness and sincerity of his remark. In the afternoon succeeding this interview with his counsel, the aged mother of the prisoner appeared at the jail, and upon her solicitation was shown to the cell of her unhappy son. The interview was a protracted one, and the scene is said to have been most pathetic. The death warrant soon followed, and was read to Utterzook in his cell by the sheriff, in the presence of the prisoner's counsel, the district attorney, and several other gentlemen. The warrant required David Gill, High Sheriff of the County of Chester, to cause the sentence of the court to be executed upon Utterzook between the hours of ten o'clock in the forenoon and three in the afternoon of Thursday, the twelfth day of November, 1874. During the reading, the prisoner stood with bowed head and clasped hands and listened with seeming attentiveness. When the sheriff had concluded, that officer remarked to the doomed man, I hope you'll be prepared, to which the prisoner replied, You said the twelfth of next month? And the sheriff responded, Yes. That, said Utterzook, is just four weeks from today. I am thankful I have that much time given me to prepare. If any of you were in my situation, you would think this time very short, but I am thankful it is so long, thankful that I am granted sufficient time to prepare for the worst. I suppose those who busied themselves in working against me thought they were discharging their duty. They may have been. The governor, I suppose, thought he did his duty. Also the officers of the Supreme Court of the State, and the court that tried me here, and the Commonwealth's officers, and the insurance agents, all thought they were performing acts such as their duties demanded. There were some things done falsely, but I hold no malice towards any one. I forgive them all. It is not probable these were the exact words used by Utterzook, for he was incapable of expressing himself so concisely. But they, no doubt, faithfully expressed the ideas he intended to convey, although dressed in the words of one of his auditors. During the four weeks intervening between the reception of his death warrant and his execution, Utterzook busied himself in writing, but destroyed his manuscripts without making public their contents. He wrote letters to every member of his family, and expressed a desire to make a speech upon the scaffold, but from this he was dissuaded. One of his letters written for publication, dated October 19, 1874, and addressed to the world and my loved ones, appeared in the newspapers of that date. In that letter, he says, 
correcting some errors of orthography, quote, It is my desire that my remains will rest in Baltimore, if not in the same lot, at least in the same cemetery with those of Mr. W. S. Goss, a friend ever dear to me, that our bodies may return to the mother dust, and our spirits may mingle together on the bright, sunny banks of deliverance, where pleasures never end. I hope the time is not far distant when the people will see the danger of prepared and bought testimony, and a prearranged design aided by thousands of dollars. He reiterates his innocence, and intimates to his readers an obscure prophetic alarm as to what the insurance companies will do. The execution of the murderer was consummated shortly after noon on the 12th day of November, 1874. It was attended with the least possible ceremony, everything being conducted by Sheriff Gill, decently and in order. Utterzook made no allusion to his guilt or innocence while upon the scaffold, nor did he appear disconcerted to any noticeable extent. He died manifesting the same spirit of arrogance that had been so conspicuous in him from the night of the fire on the York Road. End of section 44